Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you as ever for being here. That's it. No more interlulls. This season's quota of interlulls has been fulfilled. There are no more gaps between now and the end of the season. Ten games to go. It's laser focus on each one of those games, one game at a time, of course. It appears to have been a pretty decent interlull, all things considered, for the Arsenal players. There are no reports of any uh, big problems or injuries at the time of recording Thursday afternoon. We've we've had Mikel Arteta's press conference. He's talking about Bukayo Saka being available again for Crystal Palace on Monday. Uh, he was uh, missing for England because of COVID-19, but no reports of injuries. Of course, they could be keeping stuff quiet, but there don't appear to be any uh, any problems or reported injuries that could impact us, at least going into this Palace game. And some players have gone away and done pretty well. Nicolas Pepe scored for Ivory Coast. Gabriel Martinelli had a good time with Brazil. Thomas Partey scored the goal, which helped Ghana qualify for the World Cup. Ben White played well for England. Smith Rowe got some minutes for England, which worried me a little, but maybe, maybe, maybe uh, they were beneficial to him in the sense that he hasn't played a great deal, so a few more minutes under his belt won't hurt at all. So as we get ready for this crunch run-in, is it crunch? I think it is. I mean, what other word could you use to to describe it in that sense? Uh, vital, crucial, decisive... I mean, they're good, but they just don't have the, the crunchiness of crunch itself. So I'm, I'm going big on the crunch. I'm all in on the crunchiness of, of this last couple of months of the season. And I hope there's no whatever the opposite of crunchy is. What is it? Mushy? Gloopy? Moist? Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope there's no mushy moistness in our in our near future. And uh, look, there's plenty to look forward to and it's going to be it's going to be a hell of a ride, I think. And of course, we will cover all of it here on the podcast and on the website. So uh, make sure you stay tuned to all our bat channels, etc., etc. A bit later on, I will give you the uh, winners of the book competition from last week to win a copy of John Sperling's book, Get It On, How Football Rocked the 70s. And we'll be getting some Crystal Palace perspective ahead of the game on Monday night. But to talk interlull and much more besides, delighted to welcome back to the show from CBS, it's James Bench. Hi, James. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How's the interlull been for you? Yeah, I mean, we were just saying beforehand, I kind of feel like it's flown by. We've yeah. had some good stories this is, I think this is like one of the best interlulls because like big things happen. 
you know, the playoffs are always the most, unlike kind of what you get in mm. South America and North America, but especially, you know, in Africa, it, it's just the most dramatic kind of moment of international football and probably a lot more fun than large chunks of World Cups often are. It, it's just chaos and I've, I've really enjoyed it. All right. Well, look, we've uh, we've got plenty to sink our teeth into, including some Arsenal players who've done pretty well uh, during this interlow. But I wanted to talk to you first about some comments that I thought were quite interesting from, from Gary Neville. He was on a Sky Sports thingy. I can't, can't remember the name of the show exactly, but it's one of those panel things. And they're talking about Mikel Arteta and he, he was quite complimentary about Mikel Arteta. Uh, he said he's a good operator. I mean, talk about being uh, over the top there. But he did say he's a brilliant coach. I love that we're seeing a team that he's getting the maximum out of it. I can see exactly how he wants to play. We all can, which, you know, is a step forward for him, seeing as he couldn't figure out Arsenal's transfer strategy <laughs> last, last summer, even though it was like like, might as well have had a big fucking sign in the air going, we're buying young players. But then he says, if Mikel Arteta gets to fourth, if he was really hard about it, he'd say, right, that's the best I can do there. I'm going now and I'm going to get my next job. I mean, it's, it's just a bit, bit defeatist, isn't it? Well, I mean, it would be quite, it'd be quite cool of Arteta, wouldn't it, if he just went, yeah. May as well, you know, just kind of gets fourth place. And then the min- the next day you sort of just see him walking out of the Emirates and that's that's it. You never hear from him again as Arsenal manager. <laughs> I think, like, if I were a manager, that's how I would kind of want to leave a club, how I would manufacture my exit. Right. No one really knows. Everyone goes, wow, that was what a way to go. Where did he go? But um, <laughs> I can absolutely understand and I, I'm I've been really careful not to get carried away by Arsenal because nothing is in the bag yet. Nothing is won. No top four position is secure as much as there are reasons to be confident. And I'm sure we'll talk about them. But I think this is the argument a Manchester United fan makes about Arsenal at the moment, because you have to convince yourself that, that this is true because I, I just don't, I don't see any evidence. I think the one thing you, you can't argue about Arsenal is that there isn't room to grow both in terms of, and I thought Jamie Carragher made this point excellently. If you watched the clip, um, it was the next thing he said was, look, you know, they, they now, they need to go out and buy their versions of Allison and Virgil van Dijk, you know, players that don't just add world-class talent, but that make the players around them play so much better. And like Arsenal know this, Arsenal fans know this, let's be honest, Gary mm. Neville, if he kind of thinks about it, knows it. And we know that that's the, the, the number eight, the, the midfielder to play next to Thomas Partey, the up, upgrade on Xhaka. And it's, of course, whoever it may be. And I have to say, I really don't, no one is saying who it might, who's top of the, mm. the list, but that number nine. But then you also have, you know, I don't believe that Bakayo Saka, Emile Smith-Rowe, Gabriel Martinelli, Ben White, Gabriel. Martin I don't believe that they yeah. won't get better. Yeah. Like these players are, are between 20 and, and 24. None of them have probably hit their peak you never know we can't just assume that every player at this Arsenal squad will be at their best at 28 but the likelihood based on everything we know about football is that more of them will improve than than not it it doesn't make sense but of course the truth is when you look at that Manchester United squad you see a lot of players who are 28 29 or they're 26 how old is Rashford 25 26 now Mm. not quite fulfilling his potential Um, and it looks a bit of a bleaker future there so you kind of explain it, and we, and we, you know, in the Arsenal community, we talk about Tottenham, and we sort of do it down by saying, you know, they're a Harry Kane injury away, and that's true sometimes. But you know, 
we all kind of, or many supporters like to construct the worst possible version of what happens with their rivals. And I think that's the worst possible version of, of Arsenal, that, that this was it, this was the best year, that they don't sign the right players to improve in the summer, that maybe they don't get top four or that when they have top four, this squad can't quite compete. Mm. But it's also, it feels like one of the more unlikely scenarios. It's, it's an interesting one as well, because like he cites, uh, Gary Neville cites, he goes, look, they've got Liverpool, they've got Ma- Man City, they've got um, Chelsea. I think he even included Man United, hilariously. But, you know, he said, <laughs> where can they go? Like, what can he do? Uh, you know, and it's like, well, do you think Mikel Arteta is an ambitious young manager? Yes, he is. So is he going to get the job at Man City? He might one day because he's got a connection there, but is he going to do Chelsea? No. Um, Liverpool? No. What does he do to display his ambition? Does he say, well, I've taken this club as far as I can, having dealt with all the shit of the last two years. Now I'm going to prove my my managerial chops once again by taking over a team in mid-table and getting them to fourth before I fuck off somewhere else again. I mean, it doesn't really work like that. And as you say very um, uh, clearly, like there's a lot of room for improvement at Arsenal. You know, there's a lot that's good. There's a lot that's positive, a lot that's encouraging, but still so much room to do things better, to improve the squad, to be more consistent, to add greater threat. And for these players, because of the ages they are, to develop and grow in a way which should, all going well, and not all will, but like if it does go well, make them competitive with teams who have bigger budgets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because in in some ways, Liverpool have shown that you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked for years about how Liverpool are the model and, and there are people within Arsenal that will admit this. I mean, you know, you go back to Unai Emery's some second summer, you know, there was the talk was almost about not just Liverpool behind the scenes, but lifting and shifting the idea of that front three and just doing it at Arsenal. And, you know, I think in in a curious way, now is kind of one of the, the strangest times to to talk about the idea that Arsenal can't go higher I don't know. None of us know what the future holds for Chelsea, but I, I think a lot of us can't imagine that what the future holds is spending beyond their means year in, year out, buying silverware. You know, we've mentioned Liverpool, Manchester United. Well, I, I believe Neville's argument was they'll spend their way back into contention again. They've been trying that for a while. Mm. It's not been a hugely effective strategy. Um, I, you know, I think if he wanted to make the point of you can only catch Man City if something goes disastrously wrong for Manchester City. None of us would disagree. And I don't think, you know, big picture, Arteta obviously will be dreaming of turning Arsenal into a title contender. I think if you sat him down and said, honestly, do you believe you can build a team that could compete with a a City at the peak of its powers? I think if you gave him truth serum, he'd probably say no. But, but, you know, that's... That it's not impossible. You have to have the ambition, don't you? You have to have that as your target. Yeah. There are more good players in the world than just City can have. Mm. Now, you know, I don't think the Arteta era ends with him lifting Premier League trophies, but I think it ends whenever it might end, and it's probably not going to be, you know, in the summer with the fourth place finish. I I, I don't think it ends with Arsenal not progressing and, Mm. and not kind of, living up to what what supporters expect this is such an exciting you know back to to 
uh, Neville's point about what would Arteta see. I feel like he would think, I've only just got to base camp now. This is where the fun bit happens. If they get top four, still an if, a big if, he gets to kind of, he gets his pretty much his choice of all but the very best striker targets, all the very best midfielders. He gets to have a swing at the Champions League and we really don't know, you know, good and bad, what Arsenal could do in the Champions League. Like, this is when you're like, yeah, this is what I signed up for. This is what I signed yeah. on my club. And it maybe took longer than I wanted and longer than the fans expected. But, you know, I'm not going anywhere now that Arsenal have just got in the Champions League. Well, exactly. And that, this, this is why I think at the moment it all ties into the idea of, you know, the celebrations that people are up in arms about because, you know, no footballers have ever celebrated anything ever before. But, you know, the the sense that something is growing between the players themselves and the manager, between the players and the fans, the club, it feels better. We've been talking about Arsenal for a long time and we've been through some good times. We've been through some pretty bad times and we know when it's good and we know when it's bad. And this actually feels good and positive and the games matter now this is the point this is why the stakes are high or when the stakes are high everything feels heightened because there's only so far even with the greatest enthusiasm with the best will in the world there's only so much enthusiasm you can muster for a game which might decide if you finish seventh or eighth in the mm -hmm. premier league but when you start getting into this level where three points are actually nearly six points because you've taken them off a rival. We're talking about relegation six-pointers, but we're talking about top some top four six-pointers here as well. It really starts to matter. And then that is that is part of the motivation. It's how you how you build and all that kind of stuff. And I think you're right to say that that once you get to this sort of level, you're, you're adding things onto it which make it even more uh, important and uh, and makes it mean more. Um, not just to the fans, but to yourself, because you're you're actually uh, you're testing yourself and you're challenging yourself. Yeah, it's a. It, I've really enjoyed. Isn't quite the right word because you know, put your fan hat on. There's tension and there's nerves, isn't there? That, mm. They're just as you say. I can't rouse myself for whether Arsenal are going to scrabble even even the possibility last season against Brighton that they might scrabble ahead of of Tottenham. It didn't really feel, you know, at least kind of my view on it was it didn't feel like it would be that exciting. You'd get a day of, of joy on Twitter out of St. Tottingham's day, but it would also, I mean, you know, it would then mean you have to play Conference League. But I feel like now, you know, as you say, there are, there are stakes, there's excitement, there's intensity. I'm sure thousands of Arsenal fans have been going through their Premier League predictors for the last eight or however many games working out, you know, talking about Palace, can Arsenal afford to drop two points there? Would they make them up somewhere else? You know, I mean, I can't help but have my eyes laser focused on that Spurs game. Can you just get out? And it's, I think almost there's this strange thing of, you wouldn't normally, if I said to you normally, oh, you know, go to the Tottenham, go to Tottenham and take a draw. Would you be happy with it? Would you celebrate it? You go, no, not really. You know, you just move on from it. But I think because it would it'd be so important to Arsenal, I think a draw would be a huge cause for celebration. Um, just briefly on the on the talk of celebration and, and policing of it, it mm. really fucks me off that Tim Silman has completely nailed this whole thing by just saying, look, Aston Villa, look, Wolves, look, 
Crystal Palace and look, Manchester United, it's just not about you. It's This is about these incredible bonds and you just literally need to, to watch what happens. Just go and see what happened at Villa Park. You didn't have to be there because it was all on TV, fair play to BT. They left, let the cameras run. <laughs> no one was going, yeah, we beat Aston Villa. It was with it here, with our fans, with each other. Mm. This is a community. So like, who gives a fuck what Gabby Agbonlahor thinks? And credit to him, he did say he was wrong there, but yeah. it's not about you lot. Yeah, well, that's that's it. We're we're invested in this from from our own perspectives, you know, as 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 Arsenal fans. Um, another subject that's come up this week is the introduction next season of, of five subs, and Mikel Arteta was asked about it at his press conference today on Thursday, and he spoke about it being, you know, putting the Premier League in line with with the rest of Europe because every other league now has five substitutions. Um, what's your general take on, on that? Like in the sense, you know, if you look at the argument that it benefits the biggest clubs, it benefits the the ones with uh, the deepest squads who can afford the best players. I mean, I think there is something to that. Um, there are other arguments for and against it. You know, you could say that if you're putting in a, if you're a Burnley, for example, and you're putting in a, a tremendous rear guard, um, defensive performance kind of park the bus type thing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Um, you know, if you can add more fresh legs in the dying stages of a game, if you could stick on an extra fullback who isn't going to be knackered, it might actually help you in, in certain games. So there is there are pros and cons, I guess. But um, overall, what's your thought on on that rule and it being brought in next season? Yeah, Personally, I like it. I think it comes down to how you enjoy experiencing games. For me, I think it will make a lot of games, like not all of them, it will make them a bit more tactically interesting, a little bit more dynamic. Obviously, my assumption is that they will, and I don't think this has been confirmed, but they will stick to the rule of five substitutions, but you can only make them in in three blocks plus half time. But I think it, it, it kind of gives games more opportunities to grow, and to go in different directions, it maybe lets us see who, I mean, obviously we know that who the highest echelon are, but which which teams have really good touchline coaches that can change a game um, with their substitutions. Equally, there will, like, there will obviously be occasions where you see a Manchester United or a Manchester City just unload their bench, you know, it's 60 mm-hmm. minutes, it's nil-nil, just bring on the fresh legs in attack. I don't think there are many Premier League teams that could really say we don't have five players on the bench that we can trust to to make a, a positive impact. Like they might not necessarily Nicola Pepe against Aston Villa, for instance. Um, but the the money is there for for teams. And I, yeah, it will be tough if you're promoted. It means more. You've got to build a bigger squad. Mm. But the money is there for teams to to be able to to use this wisely. And yeah, I totally understand that a lot of people won't agree that they'll think it. It slows that it makes the game less what they want. You know, they kind of want like 11 players to run themselves into the ground. And actually, that's not wrong if that's what you like. And you like seeing kind of the drama that comes from exhaustion in the 80th minute and onwards. <laughs> but for me, like, I'm kind of keen to see how every manager in this league exploits it or doesn't. I think it, it will make some games a lot better. What, what do you think of the idea that, um, 
maybe one of these substitutions, and I would advocate maybe both of these substitutions, because you're making a fairly profound change to the game, um, as we have known it for the last while anyway. I mean, it wasn't too long ago where you could only use one sub or two subs, you know? So these changes have occurred throughout the history of the game. But because of the the discrepancy, the financial discrepancy or otherwise, like if you're Man City and you can bring on Kevin De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva, um, you know, Riyad Mahrez, Raheem Sterling and, you know, AN other, it does give you an advantage. But what about the idea that maybe one of these subs or two of these subs would have to be academy players or homegrown players as a way of maximizing the opportunities that young players get uh, in the game? I mean, does that in some ways, um, I don't know if falsify is the right thing. Like, it, it reminds me maybe of when, you know, people were critical of, of uh, the idea that you had to have X amount of homegrown players. And Arsene Wenger said, you know, it's not, it's not about nationality. It's about your ability. It's about being, uh, you know, picking the best players available to you. Nevertheless, there is some duty on behalf of football clubs to give opportunities to young players is that something you would be behind or or do you think it's just a case that look you can't really um restrict it in that way like if you've got a squad of 25 players mm-hmm. any one of those 25 players should be able to play see see my fear is almost that that, that would be and I, I i've heard this and instinctively everyone thinks it's it's great and certainly it would be fantastic for the England national team and I guess actually the home nations as well that that count as uh, as homegrown. But equally, that feels more like something that would favour the big teams than just sort of saying, you know, you're Burnley and you can use two 35-year-old centre-backs as your fourth and fifth change. Because sadly, you know, the big teams, or the reality of the world is the big teams have the best academies. Mm. Um, City, Chelsea. Actually, we probably should put Arsenal in that category now because one thing I keep hearing from people around youth level is uh, the last few years and the emergence of Sackers and and Smith Rose have have really encouraged a lot of people that might have gone to Chelsea to uh, to look at Arsenal but that's a a, a bit of a non-sector that I would I would worry though that I mean but Brentford for instance do not have an academy so I mean maybe you sort of say with them someone that's from your beating or the home you know ticks the homegrown box yeah but I do, I fear that that would end up being something that favours the big teams more. And I think happily, English youth football development and maybe British as a whole has probably got to the stage where you now don't need to hand legs up to young players. And that if they're good enough, be they Saka, Foden, whoever, they will they will get their chances eventually. So, like, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna kick up a fuss if if the Premier League decides that's what they should do. But I do actually think that that might end up having that knock-on effect of big teams will be punching the air. All right. Speaking of a a young player, he's not necessarily homegrown uh, or an academy player, but Gabriel Martinelli um, has had a pretty successful interlull, I think, almost scored one of the most delicious goals of the season with a with a, a turn and a, a dink beyond the keeper, which also went beyond the post. But he made his debut for Brazil and he's come on uh, in a game against, uh, I think it was Bolivia as well. We worry, I think, as fans, when players go away on international duty, are they going to come back? Are they going to be injured? But on the other, uh, other side of that, a player can go away and have a great time with his national team and come back invigorated, 
and mm. full of confidence and ready to play again and ready to make a contribution again. And it feels like this international break has been that for Gabriel Martinelli. Yeah, I think kind of the joy of it is that this hasn't been an international break where um, the example I might give is back in January, you had Mikhail Antonio go and play three games in seven days for Jamaica. And that is like mm. West Ham are obviously going, Christ, don't play this guy. You know, we know it's important to him, but like yeah. we, need, we have our own things to worry about. But, you know, going out there and, and having a little cameo here and there, probably similar with Smith Rowe, who obviously has had a chance to, to work on his fitness. That's absolutely fine. And I think the more important thing is when it comes to recruitment, when it comes to developing and, and convincing the players you have to sign new contracts, it is really important that they know that if you come to Arsenal, what you're doing as a very young player is going to get noticed by the best international teams in the world. You know, if it's a, uh, there's no reporting behind this. If it's a Cody Gakpo and he's sort of trying to establish himself in the Dutch national team where I'm, I know he's a bit of a regular already, but mm. he need, he needs to see that the players that play well for Arsenal get rewarded, get trusted by international managers. I thought it was great for Arsenal as a whole, as well as for Emile Smith-Rowe, that, that Gareth Southgate very clearly said, I'm, you know, Smith-Rowe's still performing at a high level for his club and that actually, you know, it's his place. Jadon Sancho, who has been fantastic for Man United, has to win that back. And, you know, the, these things matter. It'll be the same with Saliba and uh, I don't want to kind of go into the weeds of that too much, but just, you know, an, an ambitious young footballer now sees so many boxes getting ticked around mm. Arsenal. Arteta plays me. International managers notice. Quite possibly I'm going to be playing in the Champions League. It is it's great. I would I would not be over the moon if Martinelli had played the whole two games and flown back and arrived on Friday morning and that sort of thing. But for me this is this is the ideal balance. And I mean he's up against Neymar and Vinicius Junior. He's Who? It's tough. Yeah. <laughs> um I mean it is quite the turnaround, isn't it, when you consider that that maybe a year ago, um, the perception was that Mikel Arteta didn't like young players or was overly cautious, let's say that, about young players. And then we had this this reconfiguration of, of the squad in the summer where the transfer strategy, as we referenced earlier, was was very obvious and it was part of a plan. And when you're thinking about recruitment in the summer, when you're thinking about who you're going to bring in, when you're thinking about how can we attract these players... Um, because for everything that Mikel Arteta uh, and other managers said, when perhaps Arsenal's star was waning a little bit, there was always talk about, well, we're Arsenal, we're a big club, players want to come here, players want to play here, but players also want to play for teams that are competitive and that are in Europe, and that is the reality as well. And maybe agents have a part to play in that too, that like, you know, you could go to Arsenal, but you know, there's a team that's in Europe uh, that's doing better, and maybe you'll be you'll be better off there. But when we think about the number nine, when we think about the number eight, when we think about the the kind of player that we want to attract to the football club in the summer, having this younger squad, like you say, performing at international level, being regulars at international level, you know, Ramsdale, White. Uh, Smith, Rowe, Saka, all in there for England. I know Ramsdale was injured and, and everything else. But these guys um, are in some ways an example to players that 
A, you're going to get chances at Arsenal when you're a young player. It's not a question anymore of, like, will Mikel Arteta play young players? Well, yes, he very, very obviously will, and it's working out pretty nicely for him. Um, That really does help when you're trying to um, convince a player that this is the right move for you at this point in your career. Oh, hugely. You know, we've. I'm sure I'm not the only reporter sort of semi on the Arsenal beat, less than I might like at the moment, who, you know, is chasing players or people close to every kind of top young prospect, uh, whenever you kind of be before or whenever you hear them linked with Arsenal. And sometimes you even get through to them and you talk to people close to these. And maybe even at the start of this season, there was a sort of, you know, there were conversations like, yeah, Arsenal are interested, but he's not, he's not made up his mind or, you know, don't, you know, Mm. and I think now there is a real sense. I don't want fans to get carried away and think that, you know, Erling Haaland has, has (laughs) going to renege on any plans to get to city, but like everyone looks at it and goes, this would be a great place to land my client. This would be a really positive development opportunity. And that, you know, I think maybe to an extent, if you're looking at younger players, it helps that the kind of the world know that there's been a, is, is it, I, I don't want to sort of say this quite, but that Arsenal players have been able to move on and achieve greater things in the past, historically. You know, if you want to go to Barcelona, Real Madrid, that avenue may not exist in the future, but that Arsenal have always proven to be historically a good place for young players to develop and then go on to be at the very best clubs in the game. Now, obviously, Arsenal, Arteta, hope that you just kind of, that Arsenal grow with these young players and that you go, well, of course I want to stay. Mm. But yes, it's really clear that Arsenal are kind of viewed as a lot more serious just over the course of this season. It is remarkable how quickly things change because it was quite a steady decline that you maybe didn't notice window to window, but that when you kind of looked back from 2020 at what happened in 2015, you kind of thought, gosh, you know, remember when Arsenal were convincing Alexis Sanchez to to move there? over Liverpool. And I think that that maybe is one of the few wins, real true wins where it was neck and neck. Mm. And they they plump for Arsenal. And I think we may start seeing more of them if this this trajectory continues. You know, I, I mean I don't want to sort of labor the point of Arsenal as a stepping stone because no one wants to hear that. I'll get grief <laughs> in in my tweets. Um but that you know, it's like a Dortmund where you will get the opportunity to play at the highest level at the Champions League and that if you perform exceptionally well, big, 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 big teams that may be winning the Champions League will also want you. You know, Mm. we're seeing this with Tierney. We're seeing this with a little bit with Saka, that the links are starting to emerge again. The interest from Real Madrid and Kieran Tierney, I don't know how real that is, by the way. Those sorts of stories are, it's, you know, it's worrying, but it's good news for the club because I remember two or three years ago, no one from Real, no, no one from Arsenal was really catching no. Real Madrid's eye or Man City's eye. It's it's good. It is. I, th- I think it's great. Um, and, uh, you know, not just because I'm at a, an age now where I can deal much more easily with players moving around, whereas in the past, every great player that you had that you loved who left, it mm. was like a dagger in the heart um and it hurt to see these guys go and in some ways it hurt I, because you knew that the, the, yeah go on we do all forget how 
great it was every summer when Patrick Vieira didn't go, when Thierry Henry didn't. And it was it was sort of the most grueling and exhausting summers. And then at the end you go, oh, thank fuck they're still here. Yeah. And that that those always felt that's those summers felt like a win. Yeah, well sure. And and maybe we should be glad we didn't have social media and Twitter and all this stuff playing out online 24-7 the way that it does now, because that certainly just uh, has a, has an impact on how things, yeah, I mean, it, it can be overwhelming uh, uh, these days, you know, because you, you've got no escape from it. Whereas at least you had to wait another day for the newspaper headline to come out or another Sunday where they used to save stuff up for the Sundays, you know, the Sunday people or the news of the world would come out with the back page and be like, oh, fuck, here we go again. But um, I, I've forgotten what point I was going to make about the, the, the players leaving. It was just basically that it's a consequence of having these good players, having good young players. Other teams want them. They everyone wants talent you know i think we as much as we might fear some departures we need to just embrace the fact that we have these good players it's far preferable to have good players who other teams want than to have average players who nobody wants and you have to sort of take them out into the woods uh, and leave them there you know in footballing terms or, or literally With a just get, big bag of money yeah here's a bag of money please fuck off yeah. um final thing I want to talk about is um, Nicolas Pepe, who had some comments, um, scored a good goal um, in the international break. You referenced his um, substitute appearance against Aston Villa, which I don't think was uh, particularly good. Um, it was certainly at, at odds with the the substitute appearance against Wolves, which was actually very good. Mm. Um, and I think it was James on on the Arscast Extra who pointed out, you know, the the game state may well have played a part there. If you're chasing a game, Nicolas Pepe is a good sub to have. If you're trying to see out a one nil win, uh, it's not not so much. But he talked about his own future. Basically, said we'll see what happens in the summer. He's focused on you know helping Arsenal back into the Champions League. So, said all the right things in that regard. But I, I found it interesting. He referenced like the 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 language barrier making it difficult to to communicate. Uh, and Mikel Arteta is a French speaker, so it's not a question of the instructions or, or what have you. But, you know, maybe he was in that little group with Aubameyang, with Lacazette. Mm, they all was. spoke French. And, and uh, you know, it is easy, I think, for, for players to become a bit isolated, if you like, within their own groups or whatever it is. Um, you know, they've got family and friends and all that kind of stuff. Some players just aren't particularly good or quick at picking up languages. It doesn't always matter. Like Aguero could barely say hello and goodbye, um, despite spending eight years or nine years, whatever it was in England, didn't stop him becoming the um, the top scorer for Man City. But I did find that a little bit curious. Um, and just thoughts on that and, and maybe what the what the future holds, given he's got two years left on his uh, contract come the summer. I mean, on the on the language thing, it's it's so strange because obviously for about half, half of Nicola Pepe's Arsenal career, if not more, we've kind of, as reporters, not really been able to sort of get close to, in fact, it's much, much more than half, isn't it? Mm. We've not really been able to get that close to the players. Um, and so when I saw Pepe early on quite a few times in mix zones, you know, getting to games, open training sessions, he seemed quite quiet, fair to say. Mm. Um, we did speak to him once and 
he, he spoke really well, I thought, but if I remember correctly, and I may be wrong, but I believe he spoke in French and, and it was translated and that's absolutely fine. No problem with that. We should all take it on ourselves to learn languages like French and Spanish so we can communicate with more footballers. That's, that's a, an aside. Um, but I think also, I, I, I don't get the sense that that has changed. I don't think he is um, one of the louder presences in the dressing room. He doesn't have to be like, you know, the, mm. he can only be himself. Um, but you're certainly right that I, I think, you know, interpersonally, this team looks different from the one he was introduced to and maybe the one they intended to build. And it's not built around him. And it, it's tough because, you know, when we think about his future, I like the role he has right now at Arsenal where, you know, as you say, it is, it didn't work out well against Aston Villa, but if the plan was maybe when you bring Pepe on, we just need to keep that Villa defense stretched. We need someone that, that press, press, that presses the space in behind that will look to try and get us the second goal. I don't think Arteta brought Pepe on to basically play as a, a right wing back in front of a right back. Yeah. It just, that's the way the game went because the players were knackered. Like, I think it's a good role for him to be first off the bench. And I've almost liked this season that there hasn't needed to be a great debate about we must start Pepe somewhere. We've got to get him in the team because you've got Martinelli or Smith on one flank, Saka on the other. I don't really go in for the striker debate. Like no. it, it just makes sense for him to be the, the 12th man. I don't, obviously I don't know if that's enough for Pepe. Um, it will, I would imagine depend on, what interest comes from elsewhere. He's a talented player. I don't think he's a perfect fit for the Premier League. Certainly not if you look at the way Arsenal are heading. I was just doing, you know, doing doing some stuff for a piece I've got coming today or tomorrow on on the shape of the way Arsenal are playing. It, it is much more about settling, setting the game in the attacking third, being patient, worth taking your time. That's not really going to get the best out of Pepe. But, you know it's kind of nice to have a chaos merchant. And I mean that in the most affectionate way possible. Yeah. He can come on and do things that, and we'll try things and we'll, we'll fail and sometimes succeed, but he'll do things that the very few other players in this Arsenal squad will like, if he wants to stay, I wouldn't be rushing to offer him a, a new contract unless maybe he wants to take a pay cut. <laughs> you know, I don't, I wouldn't rush this one, but if he wants to stay, I think he's really decent in the role he has now. Do you, I mean, but do you not, feel I mean I certainly feel anyway that there is a just a a general incompatibility between himself and Mikel Arteta and I don't mean on a personal level I don't think it's anything personal I just think in terms of the kinds of players that Mikel Arteta wants there tends to be a greater security mm. um in possession positionally like I think when Mikel Arteta sends on a substitute with 20 minutes to go, after five minutes, he doesn't want to be jumping up and down on the touchline, screaming at the guy or, or reminding him of his job because they've just done that before they brought him on. You know what I mean? So to me, it feels like there's a there's an incompatibility there um, that I don't know that he's ever going to be a starter unless there is a major hole in the squad. You know, and that's obviously Saka's position. Saka brings talent and consistency. Pepe brings talent and and relative inconsistency. You know, mm. so I think that that sort of sets it at odds there. And I just wonder that, you know, as a club that has had difficulties with uh, departures and selling and contract management and things like that, um, 
I mean, you can't always be the master of a situation. We know that there are other factors, agents, opportunities, what's on offer. Like, maybe there are some clubs that would like Nicolas Pepe, but maybe nobody's offering the kind of money that Arsenal want to let him go, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're going to try and deal with those kinds of issues, it just strikes me that this summer is probably the ideal time because you get to next summer, it's like, here's another guy with 12 months left on his contract and we kind of know what happens there. That is very true. I wouldn't say I would be averse to the right deal. He would, he would, of course, you know, it becomes just another thing though to check off on the, you would have to replace him Mm. because, you know, I still think he is, he is valuable almost because as you say, he is not an Arteta player introducing him at the right moments kind of brings that that sprinkling of unpredictability and you know i think if you know if martinelli had been available against villa either martinelli starting or martinelli's first off the bench and arteta has kind of got martinelli to the stage where he is he's still got that that little spark mm. that touch of unpredictability but it really is within the confines of the system. Whereas the most unpredictable thing Nicola Pepe could do is kind of play the way Mikel Arteta wants him to. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if a, I, I just not aware of any interest whatsoever that would kind of bring you a sum that would then kind of, you invest that onwards in a more arteta yeah. replacement. Um, I mean, there is an issue of depth, isn't there? Because like yeah. you're saying, he's the 12th man, basically. He's the first guy off the bench. If you don't have, you know, one of uh, Saka, Smithrow or Martinelli, um, you know, one of those on the bench um, because, you know, uh, three into uh, four into three doesn't go. But there is an issue of depth. And Pepe is that 12th man because, well, he's the next best player, in a sense, if you're looking to do anything from an attacking perspective. So... If he does go, he absolutely has to be replaced along with, you know, bringing in the striker slash strikers that might be needed. Yeah, that's what it comes down to for me. I um, I think the challenge is that we all, everyone, want, everyone claims you shouldn't see a player through the price tank that you paid for them. And of course, you know, Mikel Arteta needs to manage without thinking about that. But we are all, even if we say we're not, we are all kind of thinking, oh God, so you're telling me we paid £72 million for the, the guy that comes off the bench, you know, mm. this could be our transfer. I mean, we'll see about who, who the striker ends up being, you know, this could be Arsenal's transfer record for a, a decade or whatever. And he's ended up being not that super a sub. Like that, that's why I think we maybe kind of kid ourselves into this but I think you maybe just have to have to play the squad you have, play the hand you, you're dealt, mm. pay all those additional sums that you still owe Lille and just get on with it. I mean, I, I would certainly, you know, if I were Edu, and I'm sure Edu probably thinks the same, you know, if, if uh, you know, if, a te- if Paris Saint-Germain or a team with plenty of cash this summer ring me up and say, what do you say to 35 million for Pepe? Thank you very much. Mm. Thanks for your service, Nico. But, uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not pushing him out on the market. You know, fire sale for him. It's not worth it. You need a return where you kind of need to know who we're replacing with him with. How much is that going to cost? And then if that all works out, yeah, of course. And mm. uh, and thank Pepe for his service. There's been some fantastic games, some some great memories. And yeah, not seventy two million pounds worth, but um, 
you know, we can't can't undo those mistakes. But no. yeah, only play with the squad you dealt. Well, who knows? In these final 10 games of the season, um, and as can very often happen, a player... Uh, one single player can make a really big contribution. And if Nicolas Pepe can weigh in with a few goals that gets Arsenal back into the Champions League, he may well do his part in repaying the uh, the £72 million that we spent. Fingers crossed uh, that he can do exactly that. James, we better leave it there. Thank you very much as always. Thank you, my pleasure. Thank you very much indeed to James. You can find him on Twitter. He is at James Benge, at James Benge. Last week, we did a competition to give you a chance to win a copy of a book by John Sperling called Get It On, How the 70s Rocked Football. The question I asked you was, which player did Arsenal sign in the 1970s for a fee of £333,333? And the answer was Malcolm McDonald, who came uh, from Newcastle to Arsenal for that fee. The random number generator has sorted it all out, picked three winners, and they are Jamie Stewart, Matthew Nelmes, I think that is uh, how it's pronounced, apologies if not, and Paul Kendall. So well done to you three. I'll be in touch, I'll get your details, and we'll get the books sent out to you ASAP. And please do go and buy the book. Uh, It's fantastic reading by John. You can get it pretty much everywhere, but your local independent bookshop would be absolutely delighted to order it in for you specially. So why not give them the business? Good idea, I think. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, with Crystal Palace on Monday, I thought it might be interesting to check in with our old friend Dan from HLTCO. Dan, how are you? I'm okay, Andrew. Yourself? Not too bad at all, thanks. Tell me about your season so far. How do you how do you assess where you are and, and how Crystal Palace are doing uh, based on, let's say, your sort of uh, pre-season, if you like, expectations as to, as to how things might go? I think it's fair to say that um, we've pretty much surpassed every single expectation we could have had going into the season. You know, when Vieira arrived, there was obviously this huge turnover of players. We were going to have this massive shift in in tactics and the whole style that we were going to use. And most people outside the football club and a fair few people within the fan base were genuinely concerned that this would be the year that we got relegated. But in actual fact, you know, we've gone from strength to strength and we have a genuine chance of finishing the top half of the table. We're in this FA Cup semi-final against Chelsea. And most of all, really, the style of football is, is so 
pleasant to watch. That I, I just don't really remember a time as a Palace fan where I felt was positive. So yeah, it's, it's been fantastic, really. I, I think one of the things that's noticeable, anyway, to me, because I remember when we spoke maybe last season, and and it's not quite as as uh, big as people might say, but there was a very definite age profile in the Palace squad where a lot of your players were were erring on the side of uh, retirement, uh, more or less. Uh, and that's changed quite a bit, certainly in terms of the uh, the attacking players that have been brought in. Uh, how much of a difference has, has that made? Because, like, with all due respect to, um, you know, guys, as they get a bit older, I think we've all experienced this, the energy levels aren't quite there, you know. But when you uh, when you change that, that age profile a bit and you bring in some younger guys with, with uh, engines that don't have as many miles, on them it does make a difference yeah with that and i think the main issue for us going into the summer was that we were going to have this huge overhaul that everyone needed everyone knew needed to happen uh, but roy hodgson wasn't going to be the man to oversee that and i think that really was why there was such a degree of concern about exactly how we were going to fare this season but sort of by accident really because obviously we were linked to different managers before Patrick Vieira came in there was a very high profile approach for Lucien Favre there was a, a attempt to get Nuno Espirito Santo in and then eventually it's ended up with Patrick Vieira but because of his standing within the game and, and you know the era that he played in a lot of the players that are now at the football club are completely overawed by his sort of entire personality and the way that he goes about his job and obviously if you if you put that into a mix with a different playing style that is more aesthetically pleasing and is more attacking than Roy Hodgson if it all clicks into place as it has you end up on this sort of runaway train of positive momentum that you sort of don't really know as a Palace fan what the upper ceiling is and, and I think that is where we are at the moment thankfully yeah it's exciting isn't it when you can see potential and you can see how things can get better with some of the players that you have I think we're we're kind of experiencing something like that at, at Arsenal as well where there was this uncertainty and now people are looking at the future with real hope and, and real optimism um, you mentioned Patrick Vieira of course his Arsenal connection is obvious to, to everybody listening to this but I'm curious um, what you've made of his tenure so far at Crystal Palace. I've obviously follow you on Twitter, so I know uh, you, you feel like he's he's doing a good job with the stuff on the pitch. But but what's he like as a as a personality? What has his impact been? Let's say not just on the players or on the team and the performances and the results, but on the club as a whole. Um, how has he been around the place and, and what sort of an impact has he had? I think, I mean, the more you hear from players who obviously work with him every day, it's quite clear that he has this real hardworking mentality. But also, you, you look at, and I don't want to just throw Roy Hodgson under the bus here, but his whole job description really was to keep the club in the Premier League. And he did that for three and a half to four years mm. very, very well. Uh, but his whole mentality was respect the point, respect the clean sheet, you know, do our best to stay in games. Whereas Patrick Vieira honestly wants to win every single game of football that we enter. We could be playing Barcelona, we could be playing Grimsby, it doesn't matter. He wants to win every game. And if the players drop off that level, he has no sort of worry about not digging them out in the press. I don't think that's the fair sort of phrase to use, but he's very much someone that has raised the standards and raised the expectations 
of the football club on and off the pitch to the point where he wants everyone to buy into the fact that we're going to bring players in that are going to be you know, good technically. He wants them to express themselves, but he also wants them to be tactically cohesive. And it's, it's sort of shaking the football club a little bit out of that malaise of, well, we should just accept 10th, 11th, 12th at the absolute best. And he wants to push us on. And I think that is refreshing but also it's being done with a tactical framework behind it you know we've had managers before that have said outlandish things but you haven't necessarily felt as though there's the foundations to, to actually put it into motion and I think that's the difference with Patrick Vieira and the coaching staff he's assembled is that if they do stick around for three four or five years we really could be troubling the top eight or the top seven places on a regular basis and I think that's what everyone's really hoping for at this stage. I saw some stories last week about how he came down to the training ground or the academy or whatever and was spending some time with with the young players there. And I think, you know, as as a, a player who who grew up at Arsenal under Arsene Wenger, you know, manager who came to a football club and I don't want to use the word revolutionize, but what he tried to do was maybe standardize many aspects of the football club in terms of how the teams play, what the, what the approach is, what, what uh, if you like, the ethos of mm. the club is going to be on the pitch. Does he have that kind of remit yet? I mean, um, how do I phrase this delicately? Like sometimes at a, a club like Crystal Palace, where perhaps the difference between what's seen as a good season and a bad season is 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 maybe marginal, managers don't always get the time to come in and imprint themselves on a football club at all levels because they're so preoccupied with making sure that the first team, if you like, is is up to scratch and is achieving what it is set out to achieve. But clearly he's looking a little bit beyond that. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think that the main, I mean, I've said this to you before, I think the last time we spoke for your podcast, that the key difference for Crystal Palace in the last 12 to 24 months is that Category 1 Academy status. Because as a South London football club, we have got this huge hotbed of talent right on our doorstep. And before we were Category 1, we couldn't really make the best of that. You'd have Chelsea, you'd have Fulham, and you'd have Tottenham and Arsenal coming and, and poaching the best players. Mm. Whereas now, we've got this fantastic academy facility. We've got all of these players in the 18s and the 23s that are pretty much you know, on the verge of being able to be involved in the first team uh, next season, probably. And then bef- below that, the 13s, 15s, 16s, etc., there's a huge number of very, very talented young players. And I think that in tandem with Patrick Vieira and this this belief in what he's trying to do tactically has given him that scope in the eyes of Steve Parrish and, and everyone else behind the scenes to sort of put down long, long-term long roots. I mean, obviously, we are still in the infancy of his tenure. I'm not going to get carried away because, you know, if he continues to do as well as he has for the first sort of 10 months of his time as Palace boss, there will be all sorts of stories linking him with bigger clubs. But I would like to think that he sees enough potential in the project, at least for the next two or three years, to really want to, you know, put down a solid body of work with Palace before even contemplating a move to a stereotypical bigger club. And I think the the pieces that are are there to be put together for him to actually make us into a team that can sort of emulate a a Leicester or a Wolves, you know, in their European aspirations in the next few years. So, yeah, that's that's sort of the aim, I think, for him and us as a football club. So who, um, bringing it back to on-pitch and, and performers, who have been the the key men for you this season? Um, you know, bearing in mind that we're going to have to uh, deal with you guys on, on Monday night or try and deal with you guys on Monday night. Who are the, who are the difference makers, if you like, um, 
when it comes to these big games? Because, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, ago, you drew at Man City. So, you know, there really is something about this team. Yeah, I think it's, it's ironic because for the most part, in the early stages of the season, we were struggling from a defensive perspective on set pieces. But if you look at the way that we operate now, we've got Mark Gay and Joachim Anderson. Obviously, Mark Gay made his full England debut in this most recent international break. And he's incredibly calm on the ball for a 21-year-old. Joachim Anderson was Fulham's captain uh, last season and he slotted in perfectly well. And we tend to build from the back now in quite a, a calm fashion, which is obviously completely at odds with the way that we were playing under Roy Hodgson. Mm. We still play on the counter to an extent, but it's it's far more measured than just lump it long to the men on the flanks and let them do you know the majority of the running. We do tend to play through the pitch a lot more now, albeit at pace still. So really, you know, they provide the platform, the two centre backs, for us to have our attacking efforts. I mean, the problem for us going into this game on Monday is that it looks as though both Wilfred Zaha and Marco Elisa have picked up injury problems whilst on international duty. And obviously, uh, they're two huge players for us in the final third. So, you know, you would assume with this FA Cup semi-final looming that we probably won't risk them on Monday and would probably prefer to sort of rest them and, and let them have as much recovery as possible before taking on Chelsea at Wembley, which might actually work out in Arsenal's favour in the long run. Uh, what about Conor Gallagher in midfield? He's a player on loan from Chelsea. I've seen you tweeting about how you shouldn't fall in love with loan players, but <laughs> it's hard not to sometimes when they come in and, and uh, play exceptionally well. Yeah, he's, he's an incredible footballer. There's no getting around it. I, I've said on many an occasion on, on Twitter this season, he pretty much plays football how I would imagine everyone would play football if they could play for their club and they had the legs to do it. <laughs> he's, he's literally 100 miles an hour for every single second of the game. You could be in the 94th minute 3-0 up and he's still chasing lost causes. And that pretty much sums him up. I, I think... In the opening two or three months of the season, there was a, a fair bit of speculation about whether or not we might be able to get him to sign permanently. But given Chelsea's ongoing transfer issues and the ownership thing and the fact that he's so desperate to play for Chelsea next season, I think we've pretty much come to the realisation that we're not going to have him next year. But it will be a very sizable hole uh, that he leaves in our midfield because he's just all action all of the time. And I, I personally think by the time he gets to 28 or 29, he might have to retire because... The, the amount of miles he'll have on the clock by then is just ridiculous. I've never seen anything like it, to be honest, Andrew. It's nuts. All right. Well, maybe uh, all going well, Chelsea won't exist next season, so you can have him <laughs> uh, on a permanent basis. Um, before we go, uh, what have you made of Arsenal this season? Um, you know, from our perspective, it, it was a season which started in very difficult fashion, but has improved considerably as it's gone on. And there's been a, a level of consistency to what we're doing. Um, and in some way, similar to Palace, when you look at the attacking side of, of the team, the young players uh, that we've got that are going to grow and develop over the seasons together, hopefully uh, could uh, really blossom into something very exciting. So that's our, our optimistic have, but just curious as to what you think from from uh, a little bit of distance, if you like. Yeah, I'm very much the same as you, really. I think it's it's. I remember speaking to you at the start of the season, and you mentioned that Gary Neville didn't see any cohesive plan in your transfer strategy, and it was completely baffling to you as Arsenal fans because it was obvious what the strategy was. Yeah, and in many ways, you know, from my point of view. I look at what Mikel Arteta has been given the time and space to build there, albeit he's still, you know 
going to be hopefully around for a lot longer in terms of building a legacy as Arsenal Bosch. But it's quite clear that that group of players have really bought into what he's trying to do. There was the whole Aubameyang saga, which I think he dealt with fantastically. And you just seem to be as bonded as I can remember as a neutral from, you know, ever since Wenger left, really. And, mm. and probably the last couple of years of his tenure, it seems as though there's real forward momentum and, and a young squad there that can grow together. So, as I say, hopefully uh, we can give you a game and stop you from getting three points. But I think given the momentum and positivity that exists around your club at the moment, you could easily roll into Sellhurst and turn us over quite easily. So, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm positive about Arsenal from a neutral point of view. Obviously, not as much as you would be, but yeah, I'm, I'm completely on board with the fact that he seems to be going in the right direction with you. All right. Well, look, let's hope it's a good game Monday night. We all have, uh, we both have our um, preferred outcomes, which are pretty <laughs> obvious to everyone. But beyond that, I, I wish you luck in the semi-final. Uh, against Chelsea. I hope you murder them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, look, we'll, we'll catch up with you again soon. No worries. Dan is on Twitter at HLTCO, at HLTCO. And he's also on Patreon as well, patreon.com forward slash HLTCO. A lot of Crystal Palace, obviously, but he also does general football stuff too. And you can subscribe just to that if it tickles your fancy. Speaking of Patreon, right now there is a brand new episode of Waffle over there for our Patreon members. That is the podcast in which James and I discuss anything and everything based on listener questions and suggestions, except Arsenal. There is no Arsenal in there at all. Uh, lots of fun stuff, so you can go over and check that out right now. Patreon.com forward slash Arsbog. And we will, of course, have a Premier League preview podcast for you over the weekend. Lewis and I will be around to uh, preview the game against Crystal Palace, which, of course, takes place on Monday night, so it is an Arsenal-free weekend. Nevertheless, we can hope for everything to go wrong for the teams that we don't like. Say your prayers, throw a coin in the fountain, do a funny dance, whatever your superstition is to make the rest of them fuck it up completely. Fingers crossed they will do that. James and I will be here on Tuesday, obviously after the Palace game, with an Arsecast Extra, so please do join us for that. In the meantime, thank you as always for being here. Have yourselves a great weekend and we'll catch you on the next one. Until then, cheers. Bye-bye. Join us as we take another enchanting adventure into the world of the angriest man on Twitter. Oi, Eddie Des and the Arsenal Marketing Department. I have to take my hat off to you because you have reconnected me with my youth with these retro kits and tracksuits, which I know I shouldn't really buy, but I am powerless to refuse. 
Those were the good old days. Oi, Adidas, I've just seen our new away kits and I am incandescent with rage. You know who wears black? New Zealand rugby team. And rugby is for cunts. And as for the pink, you know who wears pink? Girls. Only girls wear pink. And the badge is still the wrong way around, you fucking bastards. Next week, another madcap laugh-a-minute romp with the angriest man on Twitter. Everything is shit! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.